Welcome to the Thoracic Oncology Group of Australasia podcast series. My name's Melissa Moore. I'm a medical oncologist at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. This is a very topical and exciting podcast, important data on the changing course of outcomes in early non-small cell lung cancer. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this topic in future months and years even. I'd like to thank Roche for sponsoring this podcast and most importantly, I'd like to welcome my co-podcasters, uh, Dr. Catherine C, who's the Director and Head of Respiratory Medicine at the Northern Hospital in Melbourne, and Mr. Naveed Alam, who's a thoracic surgeon from my centre, St. Vincent's in Melbourne, and also the Epworth Hospital. Welcome, Naveed and Catherine. Thanks, Mel. Thank you, Mel. So I thought I would just set the scene a little bit before we came to have a discussion and just summarise for our listeners some of the important data to date in this space. And I'm going to be focusing on immune therapy in the context of early stage lung cancer. And I'm going to be just briefly presenting data from three studies with the caveat that there are lots of other ongoing studies, studies that are yet to read out, but these are the ones just to, I thought were good to set the scene. So firstly, we have the Empower 010 study, which is probably the most mature study, a large randomized study published a couple of years, last year now in the Lancet. And this was a study of resected stage 1B to 3A lung cancer patients. These patients had standard adjuvant chemotherapy and then were randomized to either best supportive care or 12 months of atezolizumab every three weeks. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival, with secondary endpoints being overall survival. This study showed disease-free survival was improved in all randomised patients, regardless of stage or tumour PDL1 status. There was some overall survival updated data presented at World Lung this year, looking in particular at the stage 2 to 3A population, whose tumours were PDL1 50% or greater positive and also excluding patients with EGFR mutations or ALK rearrangements. Five-year overall survival rates were 85 versus 68% favoring the atezolizumab. On the back of this data, the FDA approved atezolizumab in the adjuvant setting for patients whose tumors were PDL1 greater than 1%. In Europe, it's been approved for patients with tumor expressing PDL1 greater than 50%. In Australia, Roche is providing this drug via a free of charge access program for that, that group that I just presented, the stage 2 to 3A PDL1 greater than 50% population, excluding EGFR or ALK molecular changes. Moving on to data in the neoadjuvant space, one of the main studies here is the Checkmate 816 study published this year in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was a study of 358 patients in a similar population to Empower 010, but included stage 1B patients. Patients with EGFR mutations or ALK rearrangements were excluded. Patients were randomized to three cycles of standard chemotherapy plus nivolumab or chemotherapy alone. And there was the option of post-operative chemotherapy or radiotherapy, but neither of these were mandated. The primary endpoint was pathological complete response rates. And these, the results for this endpoint were 24% in the arm containing nivolumab versus 2.2% in the chemotherapy alone arm. 
event-free survival at two years favoured the investigation alarm with 64% of patients not having an event versus 45%. However, the overall survival was not statistically significant. However, numerically improved at two years of 82 versus 70%. Finally, we have a study in the what we call the perioperative space. So I guess hedging their bets both ways. So the NADEM-1 trial published a couple of years ago in um, Lancet Oncology, a small phase two study of 46 patients, but in a higher risk group of stage 3A patients, again, excluding patients with EGF farm mutations or ALK rearrangements. Patients had three cycles of chemotherapy and nivolumab, similar to the Checkmate 816 study, but then post-resection had one year of adjuvant nivolumab. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival at two years. And for this high state, amazingly, this was 77%. 63% of patients in this study had a pathological complete response and 90% had pathological downstaging. So this is quite compelling data in this high risk group of stage 3A patients. More recent data presented in JCO show overall survival at 42 months of 79% in the intention to treat population. So again, just to reiterate small numbers, but really showing promising results in this space. Now, at the moment, we don't have any data comparing neoadjuvant versus adjuvant immunotherapy. I'm not aware of any studies in this space. This may be the role of cooperative groups to get these answers. However, uh, we have some excellent and compelling data coming through, which is the focus of today's discussion. And Naveed, just want to start with you. Hearing that data and then knowing what you know about this space, how do you see this changing workflow or decision-making from a thoracic surgery point of view? That's a great question, Mel. I think that given that we have potentially more data that's suggestive of real value in doing either neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy in the setting of surgery, this may tip the balance of patients who we would want to operate on, particularly in the 3A space. So for example, at this point, for stage two patients, we generally would advocate for surgery sometimes with a neoadjuvant protocol or straight to surgery with adjuvant therapy, their chemotherapy thereafter. But in a lot of 3As, we'll be very choosy about whom we operate on. And we might say, and it'll be center dependent. So some centers will say all 3As go for chemo, RT, uh, radical intent. Some will say, oh, if you have a single station N2 and it's not bulky, you might go for surgery. Whereas here, I think that it potentially swings the pendulum a little more to having adding surgery into the mix uh, for a wider group of 3A patients. The other question, though, in terms of, as you, as you were alluding to, the neoadjuvant versus adjuvant space, there's nothing new for us in the sense of not having a head-to-head -head comparison. In We have the same situation with chemotherapy, leave alone immunotherapy. So we don't really know. We don't really have head-to-head -head data for a neoadjuvant regime or regimen versus an adjuvant regimen just in the chemotherapy space in, say, stage 2 or 3A disease. So I'm not sure that we're ever going to resolve that question. There are some very compelling arguments on both sides of the equation to when you should give neoadjuvant or, or why you should give neoadjuvant versus why you should give adjuvant. We can touch on those if you think that's interesting for people. Naveed, I'll just pick you up on something you said there about things being center dependent. When I was at World Lung and there was a lot of discussion around resectability and one of the chairs of one of the sessions 
offline, asked one of the surgeons, well, what is something that's resectable? And, and he said, you know, it's a state of mind. And that, that uh, phrase came up quite a bit during the course of the conference. Is there actually a set definition for what is a resectable lung cancer or is it very centre and even surgeon specific? I would say it's very surgeon specific. There are some tumours that are clearly not resectable and there are some tumours that are clearly resectable. And then there's a grey zone in the middle, which depends on your skill set, your comfort level, what the patient can handle. And that's the art of surgery, I think. So it's certain and center dependent in the sense that there are, there will be some hospitals and it depends on who's making the decision in the sort of in the MDM and things like that. We sort of look at scenarios where I think that if you, you have to, if you're trying to determine resectability, the two sort of important conditions are one, the patient has to obviously survive the operation, but also be meaningfully able to carry out their living. No one wants to be on oxygen. And then the second one is that you need to be able to get what we'd say is an R0 resection. So things that really make you unresectable are if you're involving, say, organs you can't take out, like you're going through into the myocardium. So you can you can resect pericardium, but you can't resect myocardium, not meaningfully, or something like the esophagus or full thickness through the aorta. Then those are things where you'd say, no, not, not resectable. Whereas a lot of other things are very much resectable and it's a question of what can you reconstruct and what's the skill set and the comfort zone. Thanks, David. Catherine, I'll just come to you and, and put that, that same question to you, given this data. How do you think from a respiratory physician, this new data that's that's come through and is still coming through will change the workflow and decision making from a respiratory medicine point of view? So I think to start with Mel it's really exciting to be able to see more options for lung cancer patients given how bleak the the landscape's been for such a long time. So it's exciting to see these new options. I think from a respiratory standpoint it proposes a lot of challenges just simple things around workflows. Again, it's very center specific, who's going to work up lung cancer patients. There are lots of, there are multiple different points of entry, not so much at my health service. We have a really standardized approach to work up, but I know at many centers, lung cancer patients are referred to respiratory thoracic surgery, radiation oncology, medical oncology. And so I think one of the challenges we're going to face is who is best placed to be having this discussion around adjuvant therapy with these and neoadjuvant therapy with patients. I think also there's the potential to really highlight a lack of equity between metropolitan and regional centres. Even within metro centres, you know, access to high quality systematic staging it is very variable. And I think particularly with neoadjuvant, that's going to be critical and making sure that um, we work really closely with our pathology colleagues. I know you guys have a fantastic pathology service at St. Vincent's in Melbourne, uh, but there is also quite significant variability in centres' ability to process small specimens. And I think, you know, it's just going to be really challenging going forward. That you bring up equity, Catherine, as Naveed was talking about skill sets of surgeons, that struck me as well. And I guess that's something that that struck home to me recently um, during our Toga ASM when we had a session, a panel session on this very topic, and we had a regional representative, regional physician, 
And in the absence of data comparing neoadjuvant and adjuvant, I guess at that stage, I was probably biologically thinking, well, there's good rationale for giving it neoadjuvantly. But when I heard more about the challenges that people in regional centres might have with um, access to staging, as you said, I think it's it's quite imperative that we have the option of, of both for patients so that if we want to offer neoadjuvant therapy, you know, if it becomes available, then great. But for those situations where that's just not feasible in a, in a, in a good time frame, that we can still offer adjuvant therapy. So hopefully the, um, the PBS does us right on that. Just on that issue, Catherine, we saw in the Empower 010 data that the benefit is for the patients that are EGFR and ALK wild type and, and the other studies that I presented excluded patients. That's really bringing to the fore that we need timely results in that regard. And this is another issue of, of equity across different centres. Do you think at the moment, I mean, for most patients, we would like to have a biopsy before going to surgical resection. Do you think on the amount of tissue that we're getting, say, from EBUS samples, that that's feasible to be able to do that sort of testing most of the time? Or is that going to be a challenge? So I think different centres have different platforms. And, you know, the you, you don't actually need that much tissue if you're used to handling small samples. We have recently implemented our eBus service. So before six months ago, we didn't have access and that has really changed our ability to stage effectively. We're not relying on PET scans so much anymore. But your question was about equity. And so I do think it is realistic to have proper staging before progressing to surgery. And it's actually really important because the three A's are a really heterogeneous group. I think having that really clear preoperative staging is really important in making some of those more challenging decisions. Naveek, update me if I'm wrong, but I think that you you certainly did used to consult at Aubrey Wodonga and, and Launceston. Have you come across any of these issues in terms of timeliness or to staging or molecular results? I still do. Uh, I'm still involved with both of those uh, regional centers and quite lucky, I think, both of those places that we have very strong eBus service, both at Aubrey Wodonga and in Launceston. In terms of the timeliness, it's not quite as quick in the turnaround as it might be in the, in the metropolitan center, but it's still pretty reasonable. The main thing that's good about it is that you have that MDM and sort of, I think that that keeps everybody honest as it were, including the, the pathologists and making sure that the timelines and getting the workflow is still, is still relatively smooth. I was going to say, it's still really challenging to meet optimal care pathway timelines even if you've got, you know, the, the best high functioning service, it's it's really challenging. And we have consistently been blowing despite um, our best efforts to try and reduce those times. I think that's another big challenge. Absolutely. You mentioned MDM um, and you've mentioned MDM discussion as well, Catherine. I'm, I'm assuming that if a patient's going for thoracic surgery, that by definition, they're at a reasonably large multidisciplinary centre. But is that naive of me? And are there potentially patients out there that are having thoracic surgery for lung cancer without having their cases discussed at an MDM? I wouldn't say it's naive of you. I'd say it's wishful thinking. Last I heard, and I can speak about Victoria, because there are a lot of small private hospitals where some thoracic surgery is done, there are certainly patients that are 
getting thoracic surgery without being presented at multidisciplinary meetings. That's not the case in the big teaching hospitals or, you know, or for example, like the Northern or the Alfred or Royal Melbourne, but certainly there's some, it's one of those sort of ironic situations where if you have private health insurance and you're in a small private hospital, you probably don't get as good care as if you didn't have private health insurance and got referred to the big public hospital. Yeah, it's a real misnomer out there, I think, in the public, thinking that private health care is superior to public health care. And uh, I think the public health system does a, a fantastic job in this regard. Yeah, look, at, there, there are certainly strengths, right? I mean, if you need a knee replacement, then yeah, private health is a lot better than waiting three years in the public. But if you've got cancer, uh, I think the public system does very well. Absolutely. So, Navid, I think you alluded to to stage 3A lung cancers previously. Just looking at some of the Pacific data of the chemo radiotherapy followed by Devalumab, I think it was about 50-50 split between 3A and 3B. And obviously those 3As by definition must have been unresectable to go down the chemo radiotherapy pathway. I guess I can see a situation where that stage 3A is going to be a particularly uh, hotly debated or discussed topic in MDMs as to which is the best way to go. That I guess that's assuming that we do get some access to neoadjuvant immune therapy plus or minus chemotherapy at some stage, and also in the setting of adjuvant atezolizumab. Sure, I, I don't think that's anything new. I think 3A has been uh, has been the point of uh, contention or consensus, however you want to say. But they're always the most interesting multidisciplinary discussions. Uh, and have been for you know, decades now. So we know that there's very, there's there's really only one setting where we know that neoadjuvant chemo RT followed by surgery is better than chemo RT alone, and that's in the Pancoast setting where we actually have randomized data from that from uh, the late '90s, I believe. So, but apart from that, it's yeah, it's the wild wild west. It's wide open, and I think that'll continue. As I said, I think it it'll and it will, and there's no right answer because again, it depends on who's doing the operating and what their experience is. If you've got surgeons that don't do a lot of lung cancer surgery, then those patients aren't necessarily going to be well served by having neoadjuvant treatment and then going for an operation where the operation is a little bit harder than if they haven't had neoadjuvant therapy. And Or if you're delaying the therapies because of the, the various access points and the bottlenecks in your system, there's going to be a lot of refinement that needs to be done. So we have a lot of options at a place like St. Vincent's where it's all uh, sort of in front of us and we've got good access to lots of specialists, but in other centers, that's not going to be the case. Yes. And I think the stakes feel a little bit higher now in that the previously, if we were resecting a stage 3A patient and offering adjuvant chemotherapy, benefits from adjuvant chemotherapy in the, in the low percentages. However, with the advent of, of immune therapy, be that pre-op, peri-op, adjuvant, on the data that we've got to date, a lot higher stakes, so a lot higher um, benefits. So I think important to get that decision right. And I think this whole equity thing is seems to be a common theme about who gets um, access to experienced and, and skilled surgeons and MDM discussion. I think along those lines, one thing I find interesting is this, you know, the expression of PDL1. And so my understanding is that they went with the, although in the in the study in Empower uh, 010, they actually took in everyone independent of PDL1 status and they showed benefits, as you noted, with, with everybody. It's just the magnitude of the benefit that improved that was more impressive. And 
but they started to get pretty good results from PDL1 level expression as low as 5%. So, and they chose 50, I think, because probably the threshold, they probably did some analysis on cost of lives. Or, the the qualities, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Sorry, I'm not I'm not in the, around that space, but I'm sure that's where they came up with this idea and to try and get it FDA approved. And but you can make that argument if you've got a younger patient or someone, or even I mean, I'm not sure that you should use age necessarily as a as a marker for, for whom you should be treating aggressively. But if you've got patients that you think are at high risk of recurring and they've got a, a medium level PDL one, I don't know what you do with those patients. Yeah, I suspect we're going to be dictated to by the, um, well, at the moment, the access program and the subsequent PBS listing, but you're right, it's... Right, and that's where that's where equity will, will really come in, because people who have the money will say, okay, well, I'll do it anyway, I'll pay for it myself. Exactly, exactly. As we use more and more um, immunotherapy, I guess one of the other challenges is all of the, the adverse events that we start to see and the different immune consequences as we get more of these agents and have more and more experience and who's best to actually identify and manage those, those complications of therapy because patients are now living so much longer, which is great, but there's so many more of them now having so many more complications of therapy. So, and how do we counsel patients and who's best placed to do that counselling around what the potential adverse effects of all of this therapy is? And how do we identify which patients are actually able to identify that they're having an adverse effect to be able to come back to you? Because the community that we serve um, have very poor health literacy. And we've had several patients, you know, not present till they've got, you know, very severe pneumonitis, very hypoxic. And I think that's another one of the challenges of having all of these options. Yeah, fantastic point, Catherine. And I guess in preparation for this, I was having a look at the toxicity data out of Empower 010. And interestingly, 18% discontinuation rate due to adverse events, which is what was reasonably high, and 4% of the entire cohort with atezolizumab developed pneumonitis. I guess this is a clinical trial population, heavily selected, the best of the best. And certainly it feels like in the metastatic setting, as we're treating more patients outside of clinical trials, anecdotally, it feels like these rates of adverse events are probably getting a little bit more common. Um, this is populations where there's probably exposure-related lung damage, often an older population. So I think that's going to be, a, as you said, a, a tricky discussion to have. I think in the metastatic setting, we probably accept a little bit of a higher risk in that the alternative for these patients is not great. Whereas if we're trying to cure these patients, we don't want to be leaving them with long-term debilitating toxicities. So it's really going to be an interesting, I guess, pivot point. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to get patient preferences on this. I suspect for a lot of patients, they'll say, well, I'll, I'll wear the risk of the toxicity if it's going to make me live longer or, or higher rate of curing me. But I think in, until you've had a or seen a, um, a long-term permanent immune-related toxicity, you, know, you don't probably appreciate how impactful that can be on your quality of life. 
And at the same time, Mel, you know, if, if we take an adjuvant population, they've already had surgery, they've already had treatment, and now we're subjecting them to another 12 months of, of illness management, essentially. I don't know. I'd be, I'm going to be really interested to see how patients actually feel about committing to 12 months of, of treatment. Absolutely. We took part in the BR31 study at St Vincent's, which was the study that randomised patients post-chemotherapy after resection to devalumab or placebo. And even though we recruited a fair number of patients, there was a lot of screen fails because you would talk to patients about this, assuming they would jump. I must say, I assumed they would jump at it. And there would be patients that would get to the end of chemotherapy and say, look, no, I, I could not think of anything worse than coming for another 12 months of treatment. And granted, that's a, a randomised controlled trial with a, with a placebo arm. So it might be diff different when we've got the actual hard data in front of us. But you're right. I think there are patients that by that stage are of being medicalized. So it's going to be very interesting. I think it will be interesting to get some patient reported um, outcomes and some patient preference data as the clinical data comes through on the on the benefits of these agents. I think along those lines, um, one thing that's important in that setting and to what Catherine was saying earlier about the advantage or the importance of having, say, a preoperative diagnosis and even knowing, let's say, what your PDL1 is preoperatively is then when you have the discussion as a surgeon with a patient before the operation, and I do this already with everyone that I operate on, I say, look, surgery isn't the end of your treatment journey. There may be more therapy that's required. And at this point, I would say, depending on you know, what the lymph nodes look like, you might need adjuvant chemotherapy. But if you know that someone's got a high PDL1, you might say to them, okay, this is actually good news, and it means that after the operation, we might be looking at immunotherapy for 12 months or something like that. So if you add that into the preoperative discussion, I think that has potential to improve adherence or compliance or whatever you want to call it in terms of if you set the expectations that this is step one, this is step two, and then that's step three in your journey, which is going to last a year from a year moving forward, then that's probably helpful. Yeah, I think you're 100% right there, Naveed, and it's, it's challenging as the medical oncologist when you're talking not, not about lung cancer necessarily, but any cancer, about adjuvant therapy and the, the words the surgeon said they got it all can be hard to unpack. It's a, it's a challenging um, intellectual discussion to have about micrometastatic disease. So I think having surgeons, respiratory physicians plant that seed about the possibility of further treatment is so helpful. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, very, very helpful. And, and, the, and one of the words that I, or one of the phrases I like to use is it's an insurance policy. We think we've got it all, but we know that in a large percentage of patients, it comes back. So this is an insurance policy. And I think that sort of phrasing is helpful too. Absolutely. Navi, just a, a technical question. I don't know how much experience you've got in this area, but any technical challenges to operating on patients that have had neoadjuvant immune therapy plus or minus chemo? Yes, the, the, the main technical challenges are around this sort of inflammatory response that happens uh, inside the chest. And one of the challenges in, in the actual like anatomic resection of a, of a lobe is getting around, say, the pulmonary artery branches or the, ve the venous branches or the bronchus 
and that's right where the lymph nodes sit. And so if they are, they sometimes have this more uh, intense reaction and they can be harder to free up from the vessels. And that that's what can make the difference between a very simple operation, a very complicated operation. It might mean a higher conversion rate if you're doing it minimally invasively. If you're not a very experienced minimally invasive surgeon, you might want to tackle these operations through a thoracotomy first few times you do it, or you might have a low threshold to convert if you don't have a big minimally invasive experience. So there are certainly uh, some, some challenges that it presents. It's, it, and, and it's also variable. It's hard to predict whom is as a patient, which patients are going to have these reactions. And so you have to be probably ready for that when you go in. I think it was the NATM trial that I was looking at that there seemed to be a reasonably high conversion rate from, from a VATS procedure to an open procedure. And I guess that, as you said, just reflects experience levels and, and what surgeons discover when they actually get in there. But I guess it's like any sort of new surgical, not a procedure, but um, surgeons will will get more experienced as this becomes more common. Catherine, just wanted to come back briefly to, to staging and obviously accurate staging, as we've alluded to, is going to be incredibly important in this space. And you alluded to EBUS, similar to Naveed talking about, I guess, different experience with surgeries. There are a lot of inter-operator um, variability with EBUS procedures and the amount of tissue you get and the quality of tissue you get. Absolutely. And I think different centres approach EBUS very differently and approach staging very differently. So some centres with, they tend to be larger centres with a, a large service, lots of experience, will tend to approach staging procedures in a very systematic way, assessing, you know, N3, N2, N1 stations, regardless of what the PET findings actually show. Uh, some centres will just base their targets on essentially what the PET scan shows. And we know that PET is not necessarily a great and excellent test. So there's significant variability and there are a lot of centres that are relying on PET scans alone. Well, in the interest of time, I think we have to wrap it up there, but this is an incredibly uh, hot topic of discussion. And as I said at the start, I think there's going to be a lot more discussion around the data that's coming through and the data that's already out. I'm really appreciative and want to thank Naveed and Catherine for what's been a fantastic um, and illuminating discussion. I'm sure our listeners will also find that uh, of benefit. And I just warn you that now that you've done one of these you're in our books to tap you on the shoulder to do others. Um, so thank you again. And also thanks again to Roche who have sponsored this podcast. Um, and I hope you all enjoy listening to it. I should just have the caveat that this was recorded in September. This is such September 2022. It's such a rapidly changing field um, that what we say today might be quite different um, in six months time, but very exciting time to be a, um, a lung cancer physician and surgeon. So thank you. Thanks, Mel. Thank you, Mel.